Well, hello again. This is Steve Rowe, Assistant Professor in the Russell H. Morgan Department of Radiology and Radiological Science. Uh, this is the second part of uh, the PET-CT series, uh, When to Recommend PET, What the Body Imager Needs to Know. And we're going to continue on today. Uh, we're actually going to start with uh, some more discussion of FDG, but in a non-oncology context, uh, sort of what else FDG is good for, uh, and then move on to non-FDG radio tracers, some of the newly approved, uh, some maybe not so new, but overall newly approved radio tracers uh, that have been coming through the pipeline and are now in clinical use. But starting with FDG, so uh, just as it was the workhorse in oncology applications, it really is the workhorse in non-oncology applications as well. It's been around for a long time. We've had a lot of time to figure out what it's good for, and it turns out it's actually good for a lot of things. So one thing we use it for quite a bit is dementia imaging. I realize this may be a little far afield for most uh, body imagers or diagnostic imagers, uh, but it is maybe something to, useful to know a little bit about just sort of what the, the capabilities and limitations of FDG PET in this context are. So in particular, I would say that PET for this uh, indication is, is used primarily when the uh, type of dementia isn't clear to the clinician, uh, and they're looking for a little bit more information before starting an empiric therapy. What's nice about FDG PET is that for pretty much every kind of dementia, there's a unique pattern. Now, these patterns don't show up until fairly late in the disease. They actually are reflective of neuronal death for the most part. So you do have to have relatively advanced disease, and that may unfortunately mean that it's sort of beyond the point of, of um, being able to significantly affect the, the course of the disease. But again, it can provide some important information for clinicians in terms of choosing potential therapies and may also answer some questions for for families that have uh, family members with dementia. So what we typically see with Alzheimer's disease is sort of a temporal parietal distribution of, hypometa of hypometabolism. So this is decreased metabolism from the high typical metabolism that we see in the brain. Uh, dementia with Lewy bodies has uh, what can be a very similar pattern, although uh, it involves the occipital lobe as well. So this is something that we generally don't see in Alzheimer's disease. With Alzheimer's, you generally have preservation of the of the occipital lobe. With frontotemporal dementia, there's a couple of different types, but as the name would imply, it's primarily frontal and temporal hypometabolism that, that are manifest in those diseases. So, uh, so that, that's about all there is to say about dementia with, with FDG PET, but uh, something that's maybe uh, a little bit more relevant to most body imagers is infection and fever of unknown origin. So uh, these are things that, that our clinical colleagues really struggle with. These are uh, difficult things to figure out in the hospital setting. Uh, but FDG pets actually actually quite good at this. We, I, I think it's important to recognize most of these patients will probably get a diagnostic CT scan before they, they ever get to pet, uh, simply because uh, the CT scan is going to happen a lot faster. Uh, the patient doesn't have to be sort of off the floor for as long to get the CT scan. But if the CT scan is unrevealing, uh, pet's really a, a, a good place to go. Um, in terms of... of how to actually diagnose infection in specific areas. Uh, for charcoarthropathy in the foot, uh, FDG PET unfortunately isn't very good. That's always an inflammatory process regardless of infection. Uh, for a lot of other sites of infection, such as uh, around uh, prosthetic joints, uh, FDG also isn't tremendously tremendously useful because oftentimes there's FDG uptake nonspecifically in those contexts. 
for osteomyelitis, osteomyelitis discitis, uh, FTG-PET is not particularly good at diagnosing that because many patients have degenerative changes that have FTG uptake in their spine. But a completely normal FTG scan does actually have a very high negative predictive value for ruling out osteomyelitis discitis. So if you do get a clinical question from uh, from a colleague uh, asking about a patient that can't undergo MRI uh, and they're worried about osteomyelitis discitis, uh, PET might not be the worst thing in the world to get because, again, if it is normal, you've, you've ruled that diagnosis out. Uh, here are just a couple of examples of, of infection on PET. So uh, again, nothing necessarily tremendously specific about some of these findings. You know, could, could for instance, the left-hand uh, series of images, could that be degenerative change in the spine? I guess it could be, but it is pretty focally hot. Uh, and as you can see on the MRI, there's uh, uh, abnormal signal within the vertebral bodies. Uh, there's uh, phlegmon in front of the, in front of the vertebral column. So, so this was a, a case of osteomyelitis discitis. Uh, and then uh, here, uh, uh, in the right-hand images, uh, it's a patient with a, an infection around a, a prosthetic joint. Um, the uptake around the prosthesis itself is actually not too helpful. Again, that could be nonspecific. Uh, but here you can see there's actually a, a subcutaneous abscess that has kind of formed from, uh, from the draining infection around the prosthesis. And the FDG uptake around that is a lot more specific for the presence of infection. In terms of fever of unknown origin, uh, when you look at the meta-analytic level, uh, really does say that the PET-CT is kind of your definitive modality in terms of uh, sensitivity for finding a site of disease that uh, either there's overwhelming clinical evidence that it was a true site of disease or that uh, uh, patients were able to undergo biopsy and an organism was able to be grown out. These, these studies have kind of different true standards, but uh, I think that the trend is undeniable that, that FDG PET-CT um, kind of beats out other, uh, other modalities for, uh, for finding something that would explain a fever of unknown origin. Uh, cardiac imaging uh, for those folks that, that do uh, that do any cardiac imaging as part of their practice, uh, it is important to know uh, some of the some of the indications in which you might get a cardiac PET. Uh, and one of those is for assessing viability. So, um, in patients that have undergone uh, perfusion studies and have, are found to have a fixed defect, uh, we often don't know if that defect is hibernating myocardium or if it is truly a transmural scar indicative of an old infarct. What we're able to do is to take uh, FDG and we're, when we image with, with FDG in a properly prepared patient, if the area of fixed defect on perfusion imaging has FDG uptake, then there has to be viable myocardium there and it is just hibernating myocardium and not transmural scar. And that has important implications for, for these patients because those are patients that actually should undergo uh, revascularization therapy of some kind. Uh, they're going to benefit from that. If, uh, if in, but if you don't see FDG uptake in the area of that fixed defect, then that is indicative of the presence of transmural scar. Uh, it is an infarcted part of the left ventricular myocardium. And uh, in general, patients will not uh, see a benefit from re revascularization in that context. Uh, we also have a, an expanding role in 
uh, imaging sarcoid with with PET. So uh, again, this is all just FDG PET, uh, just different uh, different ways to use it. So in in patients with suspected cardiac sarcoid, we actually put them on a special diet, and that diet wipes out uh, the normal. Uh, FDG uptake within the left ventricular myocardium. So it switches the left ventricular myocardium over to entirely fatty acid use. And then when we give the patients FDG, if they have FDG uptake in their heart, uh, we can suspect that that is indicative of inflammation and isn't just physiologic uptake. And this uptake is often patchy. Uh, it's often in the basal segments of the left ventricular myocardium. And uh, and so this is, this is a great way to figure out if a patient does have active um, myocardial sarcoid involvement. Uh, and here's a, an example from the literature showing, uh, showing such a patient. So they have uh, extensive adenopathy, uh, which isn't surprising in a sarcoid patient, and that's all FDG AVID as well. Uh, but then they also have these foci of uptake in the heart. And assuming this patient was properly prepared with the right diet, uh, those again won't be physiologic. Those will be indicative of active inflammatory sarcoid. Okay, so I think that that covers a lot of, of what anyone would need to know about FDG uh, as a pet radio tracer. But again, that's not the only pet radio tracer, and there are some new things that uh, a couple of which have just been FDA approved in the last couple of years and are pretty exciting. And I'm just going to touch on on all of these briefly. So for prostate cancer, as as we discussed last time, there's really no role for FDG PET in most prostate cancer patients. Uh, just a little bit at kind of the end stages of the disease when it's a metastatic castration resistant, but. For those patients that have much more limited disease, say they have biochemical recurrence uh, following prostatectomy or following external beam radiation therapy, uh, there are a couple of radio tracers out there that now have uh, proven higher sensitivity than conventional imaging with diagnostic CT and bone scan. The first of those uh, to find its way into the NCCN guidelines was carbon-11 choline PET. And choline PET uh, doesn't have a tremendously good sensitivity for biochemical recurrence, but again, better than other things that were out there. And so if in the context of a negative CT and bone scan uh, in a patient that you know with a rising PSA must have recurrence of their disease, uh, choline PET was an option at some centers. Uh, C11 has a very short half-life, however, and so it was really necessary to be kind of on site with a cyclotron to be able to make use of this radio tracer. And that really limited its, its utility. Uh, here's some data from the literature that basically says, you know, even going down to fairly low PSAs, you can you can achieve a respectable sensitivity for uh, a suspected site of disease with with C11 choline. So with PSA levels less than one, maybe about one third of patients will have a finding on the scan that that indicates a site of disease. As you go to higher PSAs, uh, you are more likely to find a site of disease, but you're also more likely to find widespread disease, and so uh, the patient may sort of enter a uh, enter a, a a phase of disease where they uh, aren't appropriate for kind of a focal therapy or metastasis-directed therapy, whereas you can find their disease when their PSA is much lower, uh, there may be more therapy options for, for those patients. A little more exciting than C11 choline, uh, partly because it can be manufactured centrally and shipped to a number of sites because it has a longer physical half-life, is the artificial amino acid F18-FACBC. Uh, this is also known as flucyclovine or axamin, and uh, this is really... Uh, uh, I've actually been surprised at how quickly this has been adopted by the the 
um, GU oncology community. Uh, I think it is a better radio tracer than C11-choline in, in many ways, not only the longer half-life, but I, I think it does have uh, improved imaging characteristics. I think if you look at biochemical recurrence patients in the literature uh, at sort of every PSA level, uh, FACBC does have a higher sensitivity for finding a site of disease. So often you can identify sites of disease at lower PSA values and again, open up some, uh, some potential therapy options for patients. And uh, last, uh, last I heard, uh, there have been uh, uh, more than 20,000 patients uh, scanned uh, with this radio tracer since it was FDA approved uh, a little less than two years ago. Or, I'm sorry, a little more than two years ago now. Uh, and I think that's pretty, pretty rapid adoption for something that, that tends to be a little bit on the esoteric side. So, uh, you know, I think patients for the time being will continue to get CT and bone scan as kind of a first line uh, workup when they have biochemical recurrence. But uh, if you're maybe at a site where your clinicians don't deal with a lot of prostate cancer patients or uh, smaller medical centers uh, where uh, maybe the, the penetration of, of this radio tracer hasn't been as good, uh, it can't hurt to sort of to bring this to the attention of, of your clinicians uh, to maybe refer patients for the scan as they, they may benefit from it. Uh, I do think that there are even better things in the pipeline for prostate cancer. And my guess is that in about two years, uh, FACBC will uh, be replaced by uh, some of the ligands for, for PSMA, which uh, have really become kind of a clinical standard in a lot of parts of the world and, and are going to be in the U.S. in the, in the near future. Uh, let me touch briefly on the, the amyloid agents. So these are uh, additional dementia imaging agents. Uh, they have... Um, uh, maybe a complementary role to to FDG at this point. Um, these are really only for Alzheimer's disease. So the only dementia in which these are positive typically is Alzheimer's disease. They really don't provide you any insight on, say, frontotemporal dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies. Uh, there are three different uh, radio tracers that are all FDA approved, and they're listed here on the slide. And they all have fairly similar patterns of uptake in the brain. Uh, they will always, uh, even in normal patients, uh, you will see uh, white matter uptake. Uh, these are all very fat-soluble radio tracers, and so they they stick in the white matter no matter what. Uh, but it's when you see gray matter uptake and where you see a loss of gray, mat gray matter, white matter differentiation that you have to be worried about Alzheimer's. Uh, and that's, the in this case, the, the middle of the three images on this slide. Uh, I don't think we know exactly what we're doing yet with the, the amyloid agents as far as dementia imaging goes. Um, they're, they're really nice agents. They, they work as advertised. Um, but as I said, they, they only work in, in Alzheimer's disease, uh, whereas uh, FDG-PET works uh, in uh, other types of dementia. FDG-PET's a less expensive test to do. Um, and so really what will, I guess, kind of make or break the amyloid agents is whether they prove to have kind of actionable value. Uh, if they do change patient management, if uh, anti-amyloid agents eventually kind of work out in the clinic, uh, and this is a way to, to sort of monitor response to those agents, uh, then, uh, then the amyloid agents will really take off. For right now, it uh, doesn't seem like they've, they've found widespread clinical acceptance, uh, but there is a large multi-center trial, the IDEAS trial, that's uh, addressing these questions. And I I think we'll have definitive answers as to exactly what their role is in the near future. And then I just want to spend uh, the last couple of minutes on, on gallium dotatate. Uh, I think that uh, the body imagers in the audience will, will find this very interesting because this uh, really has, is kind of transforming the, the world of imaging somatostatin receptor expressing tumors, uh, most commonly pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. 
So again, recently FDA approved, I guess maybe a little less recently now, it's uh, probably 2016 that these were approved uh, and uh, has essentially replaced in clinical practice Octrea scan for, for indications for somatostatin receptor expressing tumors. Again, most commonly pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, although there are other somatostatin receptor expressing tumors such as some uh, pheochromocytomas and medullary thyroid cancer that also can benefit from staging with this, uh, uh, with this agent. Uh, the somatostatin receptors are a family of cell surface G protein coupled receptors, uh, and both uh, both the old uh, the old agent uh, the indium one eleven penetreotide or octrea scan and the new PET agent the gallium dotatate both bind primarily to somatostatin receptor two. And here's just an example. So uh, when we used to image patients with octrea scan uh, was primarily planar imaging, often with SPECT if there was something we were concerned about. Uh, but you can see the very low resolution of the images there on the left. Uh, but on the right, uh, this is a uh, maximum intensity projection image from a dotatate PET scan. Uh, and you can see just much higher contrast resolution. Uh, this is a normal patient. They don't have any sites of disease, but I think you can see the disease would really stand out here. Uh, normal uptake is is seen in organs and tissues that express somatostatin receptor 2. Uh, so uh, one has to be aware of those in order to, to make sense of these scans, and that includes the pituitary gland, uh, salivary glands, thyroid, thymus, uh, spleen, the adrenals, the kidneys, the pancreas, the liver, and the prostate. Uh, and as you can see here, here's, here's a patient with a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Uh, it is uh, partially cystic degenerated, so on the contrast-enhanced arterial phase CT scan, it's actually a somewhat subtle finding, uh, but it is not subtle at all on the on the gallium dotatate PET. So, uh, it, and this holds out for for lesions that are really really tiny, so down in the one to two millimeter range. So, uh, this is a great way to try to find those those patients that are symptomatic from a hormonally active pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, but uh, it's uh, not visible on, on uh, anatomic imaging. And here's a patient, this is actually a metastatic pheochromocytoma patient, but you can see lung metastases show up nicely. Even though the liver has background uptake, you can usually see uh, liver metastases well because of the high contrast resolution uh, and peritoneal implants uh, show up well. So really uh, any site of disease within, uh, uh, within the head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis is very easily uh, discernible typically with, uh, with this agent. Uh, and again, just another example, uh, on the left is, uh, is a uh, Octrea scan, uh, planar image, uh, no comparison at all to what you can see on the gallium dotatate scan in the middle, uh, where you see a lot more sites of disease, and the disease that you see is much brighter. And you can see here, I mean, uh, I'd like to think of myself as an okay CT reader, but I, I think I would blow right past this kind of subtle rarefaction of bone in the, in the thoracic spine on this patient, uh, but, uh, but no missing it at all on the PET. It's just light bulb bright. And in terms of clinical impact, it's found that up to 60% of patients will have a change in their planned treatment based on the results of a gallium dotatate scan. So this really is worthwhile in getting in patients that, that do have a newly diagnosed pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor with uh, any suspicion of metastases or recurrent disease. Um, and uh, you know, many of these changes are, are major changes. So they include things like cancellation of surgery in patients that are found to have uh, unsuspected uh, systemic disease. 
just a couple of pitfalls. Uh, so again, pituitary, always super bright. Uh, doesn't mean there's anything wrong there. Uh, inflammatory conditions like sarcoid will show up with a little bit of radio tracer uptake, although typically much less bright than tumor. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, you'd have to know uh, that a splenule isn't a, a peritoneal implant because the spleen has quite a lot of uptake and a splenule will as well. And then probably the, the most famous pitfall uh, on, on these scans is that about half of patients will have uh, fairly substantive uptake in the unsenate process of the, the pancreas. And it's thought that this is uh, due to higher somatostatin receptor expression uh, on that part of the pancreas. Sometimes this is quite focal and quite avid. And so one just has to sort of be aware of it uh, and to have a very high threshold for calling disease in the unsenate process. And I will say just briefly that this is setting the stage for what will be a theranostic application. So those patients with a high volume of disease on gallium dotatate uh, are often going to be eligible for treatment with lutetium dotatate. So lutetium is a beta emitter, so it actually acts as a therapeutic agent uh, and can kill cells uh, that express somatostatin receptor. And there's a lot of meta-analytic data. There's a multi-center trial that was published in the New England Journal uh, that found that uh, patients will have uh, up to a year or more of progression-free survival uh, after initiation of dotatate on, on average. So uh, this is a great option for patients that really didn't have a lot of good chemotherapy options or other therapy options out there. Uh, so uh, kind of an exciting, uh, exciting potential application of, of the adoption of gallium dotatate is that we're gonna move into uh, uh, using the um, same tracer with a different radionuclide in order to treat these patients. And with that, I thank you for your attention, and that wraps up our two-session series on PET-CT. Thank you.